All right, and we are back for another edition of Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. I am Lee Grant, joined by Kevin Pendergrass, and tonight we're going to be discussing how one can calibrate their conscience. This is a really important Mm -hmm. topic, and it's one that we began to think about, and you and I began to discuss after we had discussed uh, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, mainly because... In that discussion, we had talked about how important it is to not violate your conscience. There's something that might not be sinful in and of itself, like eating meat sacrificed to idols, for example. But if it violates your conscience to eat that meat, Paul's point is, then you don't need to do it. But then the question is, is, well, what does that mean if you're if there's something that is inane in and of itself, it's not sinful, but your conscience leads you to believe that it is. Do we just stay in that holding pattern? Is it something that even matters? Or, you know, more directly, one of the things that I asked is, well, what if you're having a discussion that is a matter of conscience and the person with a weak conscience is trying to bind their perspective on someone else? It's it's how, why did that person arrive at their conclusion that violates our conscience in the first place? If a person holds a particular conviction, like a woman, a Christian woman shouldn't cut her hair, for example, well, why does she hold that conviction in the first place? What was she taught or he to make them arrive at that conclusion? And what does that mean for other matters of conscience? And so to that end, we decided that a discussion on how one's conscience is calibrated and how it should be calibrated would be a profitable discussion to have as a follow-up to that. Yeah, well, I've actually had a conversation with a young lady one time, and she said, Kevin, I don't even know if I am violating my conscience or not. How, how does one know if they're violating their conscience? That in and of itself is a good question, because when we talk about the conscience, first and foremost, it's important to know what we're talking about. And so at, at its fundamental meaning, your conscience is the voice inside your head that is telling you what it believes is right or wrong. And I want to underline that what it believes is right or wrong. It doesn't mean that it necessarily is right or wrong. It's telling you, this is what I have been trained to reinforce to your brain is that this is not right, or this is wrong, or that it is right, or that it is wrong, or whatever it might be. And I think we all understand when we talk about our conscience and just our minds in general, that there are times when we thought something was true, our conscience was leading us to believe something, but then we later realized that it was wrong. And so it can cause one to be somewhat confused when it comes to what is your conscience at the end of the day? And and, and how do I know that I'm not violating my conscience? And Someone had asked me this question years ago, and this was asked through a very legalistic framework, but they said, you know, Romans 14, 23 says that which is not from faith is sin. That which is is in violation of your conscience is sin. Well, I don't ever want to sin against my conscience, but there's been a few times that I wasn't sure about something and I did it anyway. Did I sin when I did that? So those are the types of of questions that we're going to be discussing throughout this episode. And I think this is going to be a really good episode because I have seen a lot of people use somebody's conscience against them in certain ways to manipulate them, to get them to feel a certain way, to even get them to maybe feel shame and guilt in order to use them. Sometimes this is yeah. not even done intentionally. It's, it's done unintentionally, but... That's why it's important to understand how to kind of take hold of your conscience and to know when it's your conscience, 
when to know when it's your conviction, and how you can make those two uh, correlate and make sure that they're in harmony with one another and how to discern when they're not in harmony with one another and how to still make a choice when you're put in that uh, position or situation. Yeah. And, and that is an extremely important delineation to make between conscience and conviction, because oftentimes your conscience will drive your convictions and at the very least, it'll drive how those convictions are expressed and in what manner those convictions are expressed. And for a lot of folks, this type of conversation is one that, that can almost be a non-starter. I mean, I, I can hear myself from five years ago saying, well, what you're basically saying is, is you need to be led by your heart. But, you know, the Bible says that the heart is desperately wicked above all things who can know it. It's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So with this, we need to know what objective truth is and we need to pursue that objective truth. But at the end of the day, as we have discussed on this podcast over and over and over again, yes, there may be an objective ground truth, but deciphering what that truth is is incredibly difficult. There's a lot of work that goes into it. And even then, that truth in and of itself might not be as authoritative as we believe that it might be. In terms of conscience, what really gets people spooked in a lot of ways, especially those that are involved in the more legalistic paradigm, is how subjective it can be. Subjectivity is one of those things that people just tend to not like. We don't like gray areas. We don't like subjectivity. We like things to be objective. We like things to be black and white. We like things to be blatantly obvious. Yeah. And when it comes to discussions of the conscience, it, it can get sticky because we don't like that subjectivity, especially those of us who are or were entrenched in legalistic paradigms and, and other things. It, it's a really important conversation. Well, so whenever we... Oh, go ahead, brother. Well, no, I was just going to say to to bounce off what you were saying. It, it's not only sticky when you're trying to deal with other people. It's sticky when you're trying to figure it out for yourself within your own mind and your own conclusions. And so it really goes both ways is, okay, how do I deal with someone's conscience when I'm trying to work with them, perhaps at my church or I have some sort of relationship with them? and we're trying to work together in the kingdom, how, how does that work when their conscience isn't leading them to the same thing that my conscience has led me to? But then also, how do I know what my conscience is actually leading me to and if it is actually a good decision? And even if in that point in time, I should be led to my uh, by my conscience. And so we'll, we'll jump right in here with just looking at a few facts, and then we'll start to uh, discuss this in a little more detail. But the word conscience is used 30 times in the New Testament. I'm not going to go through every single usage of the word. You can go on uh, scripturetext.com and you can find all this information there. Uh, but it's used, thir- around, it's used 30 times in the New Testament. And what I find interesting is that there's no parallel word or group of words used in the Old Testament. Uh, so, so you actually never see a parallel word that is used for conscience in the Old Testament like we see in the New Testament. However, that said, I don't want people to think I'm saying that the idea of conscience is not found in the Old Testament because I think the concept is, even though there's not an explicit word. Yeah. And so when we, when we talk about how the conscience used in the Bible, it's hard to simply go to these Bible passages to try and get a specific definition 
and a, a specific gauge because a lot of times the word is just used with an assumptive context. Uh, the Bible will just say something about someone doing things in their good conscience, and we'll get to that here in a moment with Paul, or someone will just talk about their conscience. We already talked about in this po- podcast, 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans chapter 14, where the words uh, specifically in 1 Corinthians 8 are used, uh, the word conscience is used. And so we, we have to start kind of building based upon principles and based upon the context that is not necessarily always there, but the context that is underlying what's happening and what's taking place. So, you know, not necessarily, it may not always be explicit or specific, but I do think that it, there's enough there that exists so that we can come to a good conclusion on how to navigate our conscience and how to properly calibrate it. Yeah. And, and that's incredibly important. I really appreciate mentioning that context and doing the hard work of of establishing exactly what the meaning is that's surrounding the passage or the the situation that that word's embedded in because it's all too easy to do these word studies and you know pick up a bible dictionary or a or a, a Thayer's or a Strong's Exhaustive Concordance and look up a word and find all the scriptures and then just, you know, copy those scriptures into our sermon notes and just read those scriptures devoid of any context behind it. It's it's very important to know what the contextual milieu is of any topic we're discussing, especially something as subjective as what the conscience is. But well, I, I th- oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and sometimes the problem with doing word studies is that it limits the information that you're working with because there the concept may exist as we just talked about the, the, there's no word for conscience in the old testament but the concept is there and yeah. so what can happen when christians especially ministers you know especially individuals who really like to dig deep they'll say well i'm going to do a word study on this uh, on this specific topic and they'll just try to go to every single time that that greek word is used or the 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 hebrew word is used or whatever it might be and in doing so, they're neglecting a lot of other instances that could be brought into the conversation simply because the specific word is not used. But that doesn't mean that the concept's not there. And we're going to look at some concepts within the Bible itself where I believe that the conscience is the topic of the specific passage, even though the word conscience is not there. Yeah. Well, and I think to kick this off in our previous discussion related to Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, one of the takeaways that we had there, one of the practical applications that we had discussed was the idea that if there is something that violates your conscience, then it's something you shouldn't do. And I think in general, that rule, if we want to call it a rule, still holds true. But one of the things that we need to take note of is that in the scriptures, we see it reflected, especially from Paul, that you can act in good conscience about something, but your conscience is not always right. It's something that can lead you to do the wrong things, even if you do them in all good conscience. Yeah, and we see this all throughout Scripture with Paul, where he goes back to his past before he was converted to Christianity. I mean, we see this in Acts 23, verse 1, where Paul uses the word, hey, before this time I acted in all good conscience. And even in Acts 26, verse 9, Paul, the word conscience isn't used, but Paul says that prior I thought, I believed that I was supposed to do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, his conscience was bearing him witness that what he was doing was right. 
First yeah. Timothy 1.13 is another example where Paul says, everything I did prior to my conversion, I, I didn't do against my conscience. I did it within concordance uh, or within accordance with my conscience. I did these things thinking that they were proper, thinking that they were correct because my conscience was leading me to do these things. And we see in Scripture that the conscience can be defiled, 1 Corinthians 8, 7 and Titus 1, 15. We see that the conscience can be emboldened to sin, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 10. The conscience can even be seared, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. And I want to just make a little note right here. We'll table this and come back later. But the idea of searing one's conscience really means suppressing your conscience. Uh, the conscience can even be evil. It can be trained to do evil, Hebrews 10, 22. And so, as you pointed out, our conscience can sometimes be telling us to do things that are wrong, to do things that we shouldn't do, or it may be telling us not to do something when it is perfectly acceptable. So the first thing we have to learn about the conscience is it's a very fragile thing. I mean, we're not dealing with something that's rock hard, concrete, that's strong, that's tough. You pointed out earlier how subjective the conscience is, and clearly it is because each person is oftentimes led to do conflicting things, and they think that they're yeah. being led by their conscience. And in large part, they probably are being led by their conscience. But the, not everyone always has the same conscience. That was what Paul was talking about there in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And so, Lee, let's, let's ask this question. With all this information in mind, why then is it important to calibrate the conscience? Well, it's important because your conscience can lead you to do things that may in and of themselves be sinful or that can cause harm or destruction to others. You know, in mentioning Paul and what he did, one of the things that I can't help but think about whenever we talk about this subject is my past and your past within, you know, our former legalistic framework. Whenever I think about how I used to interact with people and how I used to interact with the scriptures and how I used to preach the word and browbeat the word into other people. I did that in all good conscience, you know, to yeah. borrow a phrase from Paul whenever he was killing people. Now, I mean, <laughs> I never killed anybody, but in all good conscience, I preached what I preached. And some of those words were harmful. Some of those words you know, cause distress and disdain for the church in the minds of others. And in the way I would have justified that before is this idea, well, these people just don't love the truth. These people just don't like what I have to say. They don't like what the Bible has to teach. They just don't appreciate Jesus. They don't appreciate the Bible. You know, these are just people that hate the truth. And if they love the truth, well, then they wouldn't be so offended by what I had to say. Yeah. But the reality of it is, is so much of what I preached before ignored context. So much of what I preached before ignored what you have described as that grand meta narrative of the Bible that leads us into relationship with God through the love of Christ. And in that, even though my conscience was clear, it was miscalibrated. Right. So calibrating your conscience means to bring it into line with a more Christ-centered milieu, with a more Christ-centered approach and a more Christocentric um, ideology that drives the application that your conscience would then um, program within you or allow you to engage in. Yeah, just like you, I thought that I was doing everything the the way I was supposed to be doing it. I thought I was a, a Bible-believing, Bible-toting, Bible-quoting minister who was defending the truth, and 
my conscience was was bearing me witness that everything I did, I did in all sincerity. I mean, I really thought it was what I was supposed to be doing. And I look back and I think, well, what was I doing, man? In fact, back when this was in 2007, when I was at Freed Hardeman University, and Ralph Gilmore, Dr. Ralph Gilmore, was teaching on the subject of hand clapping. And it was open forum. And so, of course, there were a lot of people there. It was the most attended event. And I think there was probably several thousand people there. And there had already been whispers that he was going to, of all things, say that there's times when hand clapping in worship is not sinful. Now, at that point in time, I believed it was. And so I went to the to the open forum that day and I listened to him and he gave a presentation on why he believed there wasn't anything wrong with it. And he didn't take comments that day, but he had he had made mention how he was going to discuss it more the following day. So knowing that this was coming the next day, I I just thought to myself, I've got to do something about this. And I remember, I mean, my, my I was truly being led by my conscience because I thought within myself, well, if 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 not me, then who? Who's going to stand up against this false teacher? Who's going to stand? And I'm putting this in quotations, but that's what I believed at this time. Who's yeah. going to stand up against this false teaching? Nobody else is going to do it. I've got to do this. And so it was heavy on my conscience that I needed to stand up at open forum when I had the opportunity, go to the, the, the microphone and rebuke this man. And that's exactly what I did. I did that being led by my conscience. And I had, there's this quote by Pascal. It says, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from their conscience. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, Oh, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say that's spot on, man. That's all I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and of course some have translated that as when they do it from religious conviction, but what tends to happen, Lee, is that most people believe that the default safe position is always their conscience. And so they, they immediately resort to, okay, well, well, what does my conscience say? And whatever my conscience says Whatever I'm feeling, that's what I'm going to lean into. The reason why I think that is absolutely false is, as we just pointed out, your conscience can be way off, and there has to be something more than your conscience, which I believe is conviction to lead the way. And we're going to talk about the difference between conviction and conscience here in just a moment. But let me give this example. As a bishop, there was a man by the name of Bishop John Henry Hopkins, and he lived from 1792 to 1868. And he struggled when he came over to America with reconciling his own thoughts and feelings towards slavery with his convictions about what he believed the Bible taught. And when I say convictions, I'm actually going to go further and say, actually, not necessarily his conviction as much as his conscience. He was convinced that the Bible truth affirmed the institution of slavery and his conscience was bearing him witness of that. And so this is what he ended up saying about 19th century slavery. He said, quote, if it were a matter to be determined by personal sympathies, compassions, taste, or feelings, I should be as ready as any man to condemn the institution of slavery. For all my prejudices of education, my habit, my social position, my education, stand entirely opposed to it. But as a Christian, I am compelled to submit my weak and erring intellect to the authority of the Almighty, for then only can I be safe in my conclusions. 
<laughs> and it, it's interesting to analyze his thoughts and feelings because what he's saying is, okay, based upon my education, academically, I mean, there's just no way I think slavery is okay. Based upon my intellect, based upon my own compassionate humanity, there's something inside of me that says, I, I just don't know if this is right. But to be safe, just in case, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to condemn slavery because I want to take the safe route. And therefore, he believed that the safe route was affirming the institution of slavery. And uh, Dr. Kenton Sparks, who you actually introduced me to, his writings, he actually wrote about him. He said that, quote, Hopkins finds it necessary to park this empathy on the proverbial curb so that he can attend to and follow the, quote-unquote, explicit directions of Scripture. This, he says, is the only safe bet that a Christian can make. I think about quotes like this, and Lee, you and I have talked a lot about when we started changing, we kind of felt uncomfortable um, going to church services who did things that we no longer believe were wrong, but that we once believed were wrong. Yeah. And how that can feel uncomfortable. And if we're not careful, we can begin to believe that the safe route is just to recluse back to where we were before and say, well, I don't know, maybe this is my conscience telling me I shouldn't be doing this. And I, I can't help but think with, with with Bishop John Henry Hopkins here, how he was he, he he was fighting within himself, but what ended up winning out was what he believed was the safe route, and he thought that the safe route was to affirm the institution of nineteenth century slavery. What do you think when you read that, Lee? What comes to your mind? I mean, what just what's going through your mind right now? Well, it's, it's interesting to think about this and to try to put myself in his shoes because in terms of slavery, I think that we would say there are very few things in the world more egregious than, than slavery, especially Especially, how slavery was practiced in, in America during the civil war era and before. And I think that if we, Take the perspective. If we look at the Declaration of Independence, you know, we know that, you know, all men are created equal. You look at the garden story in the Garden of Eden, how God created man and woman, and how maybe they realized this at their time. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. Who knows? But you and I know at this point that they probably weren't, you know, white people that were created there in the garden. More than likely those folks were, were varying shades of Brown. You know, the fact that Jesus himself was a Jewish carpenter in the middle East tells us that he probably wasn't blonde haired and blue eyed, you know, in, in those, in those senses, these people more than likely had an understanding that that was probably the case. I mean, these folks weren't dummies and in your own mind, whenever you think about Jesus and you think about Jesus showing ultimate love and compassion for mankind and laying down his life upon the cross. Whenever you think about the compassion that he showed to the dregs of society and to the lowest of the low in the culture of the 1800s, you didn't have anyone more of a social on any lower of a social ladder, a rung on that social ladder than you would in a slave. 
And so in this man's mind, he sees the, the image of Jesus. He sees how Jesus is portrayed in scripture. He sees how one is to love his neighbor as himself and to love his enemies and to do good to those who hate you and, and all of this other stuff. And yet reconciling that with the abhorrent treatment of these fellow image bearers, God, our fellow image bearers, these, these people that are our brothers and sisters in many ways, especially if these slaves were Christians. Well, in this, I can see the cognitive dissonance just wreaking havoc on his own conscience. Yeah. And in his own heart, he sees that this is wrong. He sees that this is a, an egregious act against, against his fellow man and fellow image bearers, but he has to go with what the Bible says. And I just can't let, you know, my, my conscience, you know, rule the day here. I can't let my heart eat my brain because I know what the Bible says and the Bible approves slavery. This is something that I have to surrender my conscience to. And in this sense, you have that tension within the scriptures regarding those passages about slavery. We have tension with those passages versus what it means to love neighbor itself and everybody being created in the image of God, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's this thing that we tend to wrestle with, especially when we go through our changes, you know, in this sense, it's a really, really heavy topic, but in so many other ways, there, there are ways that this can rear its head that aren't quite as, as heavy as what slavery is. And one that I mentioned earlier and one that I'll mention now, it has to do with, with how a man or a woman should wear their hair. You know, we did a, a a episode on the covering and one of the perspectives that I used to hold to and that I used to preach was that a Christian sister should not cut her hair. And if you, I'm not going to belabor all of that and retread that ground. If you want to know the particulars of that discussion, you can go back and listen to that episode. But I've talked to different sisters who have come out of a more legalistic perspective and they've embraced a more grace-centered approach to scriptures. And that is still one of those things, especially amongst Pentecostal circles and within some of the one cup circles that is, it's a hard, hard thing for sisters to get by. It's like, well, yeah, I believe this. I believe this. I don't believe that about the hair anymore. I believe that the veil is, is what Paul had in mind, et cetera, et cetera. But I still can't bring myself to cut my hair. I still can't bring myself to get a trim, even though I, I see these other um, sisters in Christ that I have who have these cute hairstyles and, you know, I'm you know, may want to implement that, or I would love to be able to go to the salon with my daughter, with my mother or whoever else, but I just can't bring myself to do it. And a lot of that has to do with where I believe that the Bishop was coming from as well. I think Hopkins probably defaulted to what he believed the biblical truth to be out of a place of fear. If I go and begin preaching against slavery when the Bible, and from his perspective, so clearly authorizes it. Well, now I'm going against the Bible. And if I'm going against the Bible, well, I'm no better than Nadab and Abihu in going against the will of God. And if I do that, well, then I could be lost. And I think the same thing is true, no matter what that discussion may be, whether it has to do with having a glass of wine at dinner, whenever you've preached teetotalism your whole life, whether it has to do with trimming your hair or, or for a dude, letting his hair grow out a little bit or getting a tattoo or, or something along those lines. So much of that is predicated on fear. We're afraid to do that thing because it has been programmed within us. And it's like, 
if someone says, well, I don't believe it's a sin for a sister to cut her hair, but I'm just, I'm just not going to do it because, you know, I'm I don't want to take that chance. I don't want to take yeah. that chance. And it's like, well, why do you have that belief in the first place? Yeah. Well, and, and, and why is that your default? Right. I, I mean, I think about Bishop, the, the Bishop, uh, John Henry Hopkins and his quote, why, why is, why often is the default for some, not everybody? I mean, we, we picked this quote for a reason because a lot of people, it's not their default. But yeah. for, for others, the default is, well, I'm too afraid to do this just in, in, in words like just in case. Even the word he used, to be on the safe side. For, for the, I just want to be on the safe side in my... Well, well, how, how did that become the safe side? How, how are we determining what is the safe side? And usually it comes yeah. back to, well, ultimately, this is kind of where my feelings are at as far as my conscience. This is where I think my, my belief lies as a Christian. And I just want to make sure. I mean, if there's any doubt, and I hear that uh, quote a lot or phrase a lot too. And I used to use it. If there's any doubt, there's any doubt. I used it in my debates and that was a, it, it's a, it's a psychological technique because what you're trying to do is to say, okay, maybe I didn't prove my point, but what if, what if I'm right and you're wrong? Then, then there's this little percentage that you could go to hell and burn forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And who wants to do that? So follow me because uh, just in case, just in case. And you know, people oftentimes going back to how people can use their conscience against us, especially through fear. And this is where the conscience can be manipulated. We can even manipulate our own conscience in negative ways. But when one has been taught that something is wrong for their entire lives, or they have been taught this framework that the safe side is always the the more difficult side, because that's what I was taught that if you're not yeah. sure what to do, always take the more difficult route. <laughs> Just always, yeah. always make sure that you're taking whatever's the hardest road. That's the safe side, and I don't know why that was what was enforced and and taught growing up, but that's that's what I would believed. And so, when you were taught that way, or when you were taught that something was wrong for your entire life, it can be difficult to know how to handle your conscience when it signals danger. Or that you might be doing something wrong, even when you are convinced you are right. It's like a hair trigger that it's going off at inappropriate times. I mean, a lot of this can be tied back to anxiety, to panic attacks, to fear. I used to deal a lot with panic attacks. And what was happening is there was no panic. I mean, excuse me, there was no, there was certainly panic. There was no danger. Uh, but it, it, my, my, my brain was signaling that there was, even though there wasn't. And what I had to do over a period of time is I had to rewire my thinking and oh dude well i have something i want to throw in here because you're speaking to my wheelhouse now your nervous system has a fundamental layer there's a part of your nervous system a functional branch of it called the autonomic division and it runs the stuff that you don't have to think about and the two branches of the autonomic division of your nervous system are called the sympathetic and parasympathetic divisions your sympathetic is commonly known as the fight flight division Mm -hmm. so we're sitting here, we're having a conversation. You're in your studio office. I'm actually recording in a different location tonight and everything's safe where you are. But if that door were to open up immediately and someone threw a bucket of rattlesnakes into your room, what would you do? You'd freak out, right? Oh my goodness. Yeah. I would. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, I'd you would probably jump you, out my window. Yeah, you would go immediately <laughs> in the fight flight mode. You would either try to kill the threat or you're going to try to run flight, from the threat. Brother. I'm not a fighter, man. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> well, I'm going to throw down. I'm like, ready. Let's get with it. But in any case, your nervous system, whenever there's a threat, a life threatening you know, issue or life threatening scenario, you go into sympathetic drive and, the, and your sympathetic nervous system kicks into overdrive so that you can either fight the threat or flee from it. What's interesting is, is that the part of your brain that processes that information does not delineate between something that is truly a life threatening um, issue or truly a threat to your life and limb versus yeah. something that isn't. So if you're facing a deadline at work, your nervous system is going to process that as a bucket of rattlesnakes. If mm-hmm. someone cuts you off in traffic, that's a bucket of rattlesnakes. If, if you're dealing with these questions, if you're dealing with this, should I, or shouldn't I, if your conscience is miscalibrated, that dissonance within your own mind can often manifest itself and trigger a panic attack. And that's what that is. You've hit a certain threshold that has triggered your nervous system to behave as if you're under threat. And isn't that what your conscience is doing? Your conscience is telling you, if I do this, my soul's at risk and I could go to hell for it. Yeah. And and that's terrifying, especially if you believe in, in that position of, of, okay, well, if I'm wrong, if I'm off on this, even just the thought of, of, I could go to hell is enough to scare most people into complete submission to whoever they're listening to because they don't want to go to hell. And so tell me what I have to do. Tell me what I don't need to do. And so you were talking about women cutting their hair or even from your tradition, not using multiple cups for the Lord's Supper. And that that's that's an argument that has been used against me. Well, Kevin, look, you admit that there's nothing wrong with only using one cup for the Lord's Supper. So you know if you use only one cup for the Lord's Supper, you know that there's nothing wrong with that. But what if there's a, I mean, even if there's a 0.00001% chance that using multiple cups could be wrong, why take that chance? And so people, if they've been trained to think that way, then what they're doing is they're no longer operating through faith and conviction, but they're operating through fear and paranoia because that that now they're like, oh man, and what ends up happening is, and I think we've talked about this in other episodes, you end up finding yourself in a situation where no matter what you choose, you're putting yourself in a position where you're going to, where there's a, a percentage of a chance you could be wrong. <laughs> and you're yeah. thinking, Oh no, well, well I have to pick one, but I, what do I do? And then you end up not knowing what to do. And so I really like, there's this quote, it says you can close your eyes to the things you do not want to see, but you can't close your heart to the things you do not want to feel. Ooh, and that's good. The, the, the point is we have to learn how to accept our feelings and thoughts without always agreeing with them. And this is how I overcame panic and anxiety, at least unwanted anxiety, because there is some anxiety you want. If, if there were a bunch of rattlesnakes thrown in this room, I would, <laughs> I would hope that my body naturally kicks in. You know, if I'm driving down the road and someone does pull out, I don't think about putting my foot on the brake. That's naturally going to happen before my brain even signals that I need to, or that before I even have the the, the time the cognitive awareness it. of it. Yeah. yeah, It's just going to happen automatically. So, you know, there's things that you, you do want that adrenaline to obviously kick in, but when it comes to every thought and every feeling that you, you have, you have to learn how to listen and accept it without always agreeing with them. And Lee, I don't know about you, but what has helped me 
in when it comes to religious conversation is being able to conversate more with people I disagree with because yeah. the le- the more we isolate ourselves and the less we discuss with people who see things differently than we do the harder it is for us to listen without feeling like we have to agree or like oh no no I can't hear that because if I hear it it's going to be in my mind if it's in my mind oh no what am I going to do with it being yeah. able to say it's okay it's okay for those thoughts to be up there that doesn't mean it's my conviction. It's just a thought. And that thought may be up there because I, I've been studying the topic. Maybe it's because it's something I used to believe, but I don't believe anymore. And so we have to learn how to accept our feelings and thoughts. We have to learn to even accept our conscience without always agreeing with what our conscience is telling us. When I when it came to the panic attacks, you know that I knew at certain times when it was going to hit, I started getting these feelings, and I had to say, you know what, I'm going to have to just say those feelings are okay. It's okay to have. It's not enjoyable, but I realize that it's okay. I don't have to agree with that. There is no danger here. My body just thinks it is. Well, it's the, yeah. it's the same when it comes to your conscience. There are times when you say, look, my conscience is telling me that this is not that that the safe route is to uh, oppose uh, the abolitionists to 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 confirm. And affirm the institution of slavery. That's the safe route. But then I'm like, wait a minute. Is that though? Is that really what I need to be doing? And so sometimes, as I pointed out, people may unintentionally and unfortunately, intentionally sometimes manipulate people by using their conscience against them. And when this happens, it's usually easy to identify because it's it's gonna be there's gonna be some questions that people ask sometimes or some statements. We've already gone over a couple of those, but you're gonna you're gonna hear people say, Well, are you sure? You need to be doing that. What if you are wrong? Or isn't it better to be on the safe side and err on the side of caution? And so typically questions like this are designed to keep people stuck. And when people become stuck, it can be easy to control them, especially when they're vulnerable. And in connection with the conscience, some will claim that the Holy Spirit is working on their conscience when someone has a fearful thought or doubt about changing their views on something. And I, I want to hit on this for a minute, but before I go there, is there anything you want to say about, about that? No, man, I think that's spot on. And whenever this whole thread that we're about to get into about the Holy Spirit um, working on someone's conscience, whenever they begin to have doubts or they begin to have fears or in, in this type of situation, that is huge in Pentecostal circles. Not as much within the churches of Christ because the Holy Spirit only works through the word. After through the all. Bible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, you take that word only view, but that, <laughs> that line of thought within Pentecostal circles is absolutely massive. And which, one which, comment, I, which sometimes may be a safer view at the end of the day. Well, it might be. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but one thing that that I think is is really important to point out here is so often whenever I would preach against just following your conscience, you don't want to do that because your conscience can be wrong. Yeah. The irony is, is I'm manipulating and using people's pre-calibrated conscience to keep them stuck, just like what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. So the irony is, is whenever the conscience is preached against, you're actually using the tool of the conscience to convince somebody that their conscience shouldn't mm. be trusted. Good point. And yeah, I it, like that. It's like those little Russian nesting dolls. It just, you know, that rabbit hole just keeps going deeper and deeper. But, you know, as far as the Holy Spirit goes, that is an argument that's used oftentimes. You know, the Holy Spirit's working on your conscience. You know, you you left this church behind where there's toxicity and abuse and all this other hypocrisy running amok. 
But that guilt and that fear that you're feeling, well, that's the Holy Spirit trying to pull you (laughs) back into this system. And it's all because that conscience has been miscalibrated because someone has ingested and inherited a certain belief system related to a certain set of behaviors, and they're having a hard time leaving that behind. Yeah, well, it goes back to, I can't help but keep paralleling this to the idea of anxiety and panic attacks, because the same is true when it comes to uh, anxiety and panic attacks. Uh, usually when someone's had a panic attack, um, before, like for me, you know, there, there were times when I was driving, which my sister died in a car wreck. So I'm sure that there was already, uh, that has something to do. There there was already some foundation there, you know, when I was younger, but, um, the first time I had a panic attack driving, you know, I, what that does is that that there's an association at that point. And so even though there's, I wasn't in danger. I'm just literally, I mean, driving's like, there's very little you actually do in driving, just kind of sitting there, you know? But because the association was when you're in this position, danger, 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 danger. Well, the yeah. same has, is true with religious conviction is that if you come from a, especially as you talk about Pentecostal, charismatic, Holy Spirit background, and or you've come from a legalistic background, it doesn't have to be the churches of Christ. It doesn't have to be the Baptist. It can be anywhere. Even if you were just raised legalistically, perhaps in an unlegalistic environment, but that was still what you were taught, it's very easy then to associate certain doctrines with uh, certain feelings. And so when you hear that doctrine, this feeling could come over you and be like, oh, no, like, oh, that's, you know, what's happening? It's Pavlovian at that point. Yeah, it's Pavlovian, subconscious. Absolutely. And so, because you literally have trained yourself, it, it, a lot of this is subconscious. You only realize this is what's going on, but it is. And, you know, that's why most people who've had panic attacks, they go to the hospital thinking they had a heart attack. Well, you didn't have a heart Oh, yes, I did. I know I did. I know I did because I'm not, I'm not anxious. There's nothing going on. I didn't have a panic attack because you're, you didn't realize even what happened. You didn't realize the connections there. And most people don't realize these connections. And that's why I'm going to tell you, as as quote unquote as progressive as Kevin Pendergrass has gotten, I'm still pretty conservative when it comes to the Holy Spirit <laughs> and, and and what I think the Bible teaches on the Holy Spirit because I, I have seen, you know, and let me let me say this: I believe the Holy Spirit is in me, and I believe I have the Holy Spirit, and all those things for sure. But I even after the conversation we had with Brandon, I'm still very cautious with how I talk about the Holy Spirit, because, you yeah. know, people all say, oh, the Holy Spirit led me to do this. The Holy Spirit led me to do this. The Holy Spirit. Oh, I know it's the Holy, the Holy Spirit convicted me of this. The Holy Spirit. And all look, I know people are saying that with the best of intentions, but people have been saying those types of things for years that have led them to all sorts of atrocities. And we have to be very, very careful because once again, let me read this. People never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. So when someone thinks, this is the Holy Spirit, I know it's the Holy Spirit, then they're willing to do just about anything if they really believe that the that, that God through the Holy Spirit is leading them to do that. So I say all that to say that I have experienced personally through conversation through other people uh, telling me what what they have have gone through, and even sitting through certain church services, where the Holy Spirit is really used as this emotional motivator to either get people to do what they want. You see this a lot when it comes to money, right? I mean, and, and yeah. I love list. Look, no judgment here. I want to be careful. I'm not. Most people who do this are very sincere themselves because they think they're being led by the Holy Spirit to do this. 
But on uh, when it comes to Christian radio, the way in which they try to fundraise is to me, uh, I, I completely oppose. I, look, if they want to f- try to raise money and tell stories about how the program has helped, yes, by all means, please do that. But when you start saying, I know right now the Holy Spirit is in your heart, isn't he? He's telling you you need to give. To me, that is such a ridiculous abuse of God (laughs) and the Holy Spirit. It makes me angry. It makes me angry because that person is sitting in their car and they're probably thinking, yeah, maybe that is the Holy Spirit working on my heart. Then they call in and give money they don't even have. Uh, So, okay, anyway, all right, off that soapbox. Here's (laughs) Here's the point. Here's the point. This is why this can be so dangerous, is uh, a woman once told me that her pastor taught their church that if one ever feels guilty about something and it causes them internal terror, and I'm using the word terror because that's really the word for um, our understanding of fear, because the word biblically for fear doesn't really always connote the word terror. Um, but when we think of fear today, that's usually what we mean when we say fear. We don't use we don't use the word fear today with respect. Like I'm not like, man, I really fear Lee. He's just a great guy. I don't use that. I would say yeah. I respect Lee. Um, and if people heard me say I fear, they're going to assume, oh, Kevin's there's terror. He he's he's terrified of the me. only reason he's doing this podcast is he's afraid of Lee. <laughs> that's the only reason he's doing it. So so I'm using the word terror because that's that def, that is more of the way we today in America use the word fear and and that that terror is not always properly understood as fear in the Bible but today we understand the word fear as terror. So what they say is well when you have this terror inside of you that's the holy spirit. When you start questioning some of your doctrines that's the holy that's the holy spirit telling you that 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 you're wrong. You you don't need to change on this issue. That's the Holy Spirit working in your life. And and I told this woman, I said, well, I have no doubt that your pastor meant well, because I think he did, because he was taught this same stuff. He's being, I think, in in a large part at times, unintentionally manipulated by others through believing that this is what he's being led to do. Um, so while I have no doubt that this pastor meant well, I told her that this understanding is not only contextually incorrect, but it's emotionally disastrous. And so, for starters, the Bible never teaches. I'm going to say this as clear as I can. Uh, the Bible never teaches that the Holy Spirit convicts individual believers of sin, much less through the mode of terror and guilt. Now, the passage that is sometimes used, dare I say oftentimes used to teach this, is John 16, 8. This is when Jesus said that the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, within context, it is the world in whom the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. And this sin, according to John 16, 9, is singular and is defined as the rejection of Jesus Christ. So there's nothing in the Bible that says the Holy Spirit convicts believers of individual sins, nor does he utilize internal terror to do so. And the reason we can know that is, number one, the Bible never teaches that. That's not what John 16, 9 teaches. But furthermore, this is what Paul said about the Holy Spirit in believers. He said, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear or terror but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so trying to play off of people's guilt and then calling that the Holy Spirit, it's misguided at best and it's 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 senator at worst. But 
Sometimes our feelings will make us question or feel guilty, but that does not mean we stand condemned. Even John said in 1 John 3.20, even if we do feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings and he knows everything. And so the point here is terror and guilt are not good guides in determining truth. In fact, they are horrible guides because they set themselves at odds with faith. You there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I was yeah. just I was right. just wondering if you had anything else that you were going to say after that. I well, didn't I did, but cut I feel off. like I've just kind of been going on a rant here. So I figured <laughs> I would let you talk for a few minutes. <laughs> well, well, no, man. I, I think that's incredibly important. It's an incredibly important delineation. And I know in my Pentecostal background, for all the talk of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does and how the Holy Spirit works, it's it's ignored that a product of the Holy Spirit's prodding won't be fear. I mean, you can have a shift to convictions, you can have clarity, but, but you never see the Holy Spirit bringing about conviction or change or anything like that through fear or terror. And I, I think it's especially important what you said there at the very end about how Whenever we are operating from a place of fear or a place of terror, which I like that word better, because oftentimes that's what it is. We are terrorized by our own miscalibrated conscience that what we are going to do is going to land us in a hot seat before God. And he's standing up there waiting (laughs) with a baton to hit us over the head with it. But whenever we think about it in those terms, one of the passages that really got me started thinking on this process of not allowing faith to be the arbiter of my convictions or my spiritual conclusions is that passage over there. I think it's in first John about how perfect love casts out fear. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't need to operate from a place of fear. This idea of the safe path, you know, we need to take the safe path. And whenever you're afraid that what you're going to do is, you know, might, might not be safe. Well, then you need to default to that quote unquote safe path. Yeah. When, well, when, when Jesus said, walk on water, Peter wasn't like, uh, I'm going to take the safe path and stay in this boat. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But oftentimes we allow fear to be that driving factor behind behind our practices and the applications of our conscience and ultimately the driving factor behind the convictions we hold. And when we do that, we're not operating from a place of faith. We're not operating from a place of love. A mature faith is one that embraces love. It's one that recognizes love as the ultimate highest ethic that's espoused within scripture. And whenever we operate from a place of fear, we're supplanting love from its ultimate place and position within our own hearts and within our own souls. Our faith should cast out our fear when we're operating in faith. Whenever we have that conviction of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is working within us and guiding us. It's not going to lead us to a place of greater fear. It's going to lead us to a place of greater faith through love. Yeah. And if if that fear is the primary motivating factor behind what we do and why we do it, we're not operating by the Holy Spirit. We're not operating from faith. We're not operating from love. We're operating from a miscalibrated conscience. Yeah, and the word fear in English, which we'll probably do a, a lesson on uh, fear in the in the future, but it's as I pointed out earlier, it's usually used to connote like horror, terror, insecure demeanor, et cetera, et cetera. But The word fear in the Bible, while it can mean these things at times, it can also mean just reverence or respect. And so, for example, when Paul speaks of the Christians at Corinth, 
receiving their beloved brother Titus in fear and trembling. This is in 2 Corinthians 7.15. He did not mean that they were terrified of him and like shaking in their boots like, oh no, Titus is coming. What are we going to do? No, it was it was this reverence. They loved Titus. They couldn't wait to see him. And this is a reverence and respect Christians should have not only toward God, but one another. However, the way that many of us today try to operate through fear is is in opposition to faith. It's it is this horror, terror, shaking in their boots, and it's much different than reverent fear. You know, as I pointed out, terror fear is manipulative. It's controlling, and one of the main emotions that should not be used in our spiritual decision making, as you just pointed out, is this kind of fear. Jesus even contrasted terror fear with faith. In uh, Mark 4, verse 40, Mark 5, 36, Jesus explained how his disciples should operate from faith and not terror fear. So he's he's actually creating this dichotomy. I don't think it's a false dichotomy because Jesus is the one who created it. And so he's saying that there's either faith or there's fear. What spectrum are you going to lean on? What is the safe route? The safe route's not fear. The safe side's not fear. It's faith. And you alluded to First uh, John four sixteen through eighteen. Oh, perfect love cast out fear. And Paul said the same thing in Second Timothy one seven or something similar to it. He said that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but He's given us a spirit of power and of love and of self control. And what I find interesting in the Bible is the Bible always talks about self control, and that's something else that oftentimes is contrasted with fear. Because when people are operating off of fear, they're not really in control of their emotions. When someone is having a panic attack, at that moment, if they act on their feelings, they're not in control of their emotions. They're literally acting irrational. And that that is, I mean, when I did it, I was acting irrational. There was nothing to be afraid of. But because of what I was listening to in my brain, in my mind, I was listening to fear. Well, the same is true when it comes to your conscience, when it comes to spiritual matters. We are not to to operate based upon our emotions when we're at a very high emotional state. And once again, I don't mean to be picking on churches tonight, (laughs) but that's where you see a lot of churches, especially in corporate worship. And I have nothing against instrumental musically. You know this, I've done five episodes on why I changed my view on this, (laughs) but the way that it can be used is in a very uh, much highly emotional, emotional state where they know which notes to play. You and I have talked about this before. They know how to play them. And it's, it's you know, who wants to accept Jesus tonight? You know, who, who's ready to do this? And by the way, there's a lot of videos on why this type of stuff is can, can be dangerous. I don't think it's wrong. I'm not condemning people who, who use it or go to churches who do um, use it in this way. But I think personally that what we need to do as Christians is try to not get away from emotion. Don't get me wrong, but we need to ultimately make sure we're making our decisions with sound judgment. And when we're in our our right minds Uh, in Romans chapter 12, verse three, Paul says that we are to think with sober judgment. And this, this idea, this concept of thinking in your right mind, thinking with sober judgment. It doesn't just mean don't be drunk. <laughs> you know, we yeah. we oftentimes use those passages in ways to say, well, don't get drunk. Sure, that that's one way that we need to make sure we're keeping our sobriety is by not getting drunk. 
But it's also by not putting ourselves in these highly emotional situations in making decisions there. I mean, I'm in sales. So I, I've I've gone through sales training and I hate the the manipulative tactics that are yes. often used because it's, you know, I mean, once again, it's try to try to get people right now, right here. And 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 sometimes you'll even see this with with some. Once again, I'm qualifying here. I'm even gonna say maybe a few real estate agents, but you have a family. They look at a house and they're like, Yeah, we like it. She she or he says, Well, you know, I've got several other people that I think they're about to make an offer on it too. You know, you better go ahead and make an offer if you want this house. Well, they may or may not be telling the truth, but either way, even if they are telling the truth, the point is we want you to make this decision because you're terrified you may you may not get this house. A Fear real estate agent yeah. has never said, you know, take your time because nobody's interested in this house and you have all the time in the world. Go ahead and take your time. Make sure, you know, maybe call me back in a few weeks with your decision. That's one thing you, you're never going to hear from a salesperson <laughs> because the idea is there's an emotional state that has been created for that person to think in. And what the, what the individual is trying to do is persuade them to think their way. We have this podcast. We're open. We're vulnerable because we we want you to take your time in your decisions. We don't ever want someone to say, come right now. It's kind of the invitation. I'm going to have a sermon on hell, and then we're going to have 10 verses of the invitation <laughs> song and say, I know there's somebody here. There's somebody here tonight. They, Oh, I know it. I know if there's somebody here. And eventually that person's like, yeah, that's me he's talking to, you know. And two hours later after that same song over and over and finally walk down and do what you got to sure do. You weren't Pentecostal back in the day, man? You know, Is this I, I did some tent meetings that were probably pl- pretty close to it. But <laughs> all in all, and I want to be careful. I really am trying because, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I am in a, an emotional state right now, you know. So this is uh, that's kind of ironic, isn't it? But when you, <laughs> but, but talking about this subject, I, I think the reason why it's so important is because it's so easy to allow ourselves to get manipulated without realizing it, to get out of our sobriety without realizing it to, 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 you know, and, and people say, well, how do you know when you're making a, a good decision? Well, if it's a decision that you've made and you keep coming back to it, and you realize, yes, this is the decision that you know I need to make. And you're not making it because you're terrified. You're not making it because you're you're fearful. You're not feeling like you have to make it in that moment. And that's what you continue to come back to by and large. Like, yeah, this is this is true. But every now and then I kind of feel like the other way, but that's only when I'm afraid, or that's only in certain emotional situations. But by and large, when I'm in my right mind, my best mind, this is what I believe. That 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 that's really your gauge. That's how you yeah. know what you, what you really believe. But, um, one more thing I was going to say, and then we'll, we'll, uh, hit up a couple more points here, but going back to this whole idea here, the reason why, um, I'm talking about the Holy spirit so much is because I do think that that is a way in which people have tried to, uh, there's a, there's a real good, I, I guess you could say correlation between what people call the conscience and the Holy Spirit. But I want to yes. now talk about, you know, how now to, okay, so Kevin, you've talked about all this, you've gone on this rant, you've got on this soapbox. So how do you then deal with your conscience? You know, what, what exactly do you mean, Lee, when you say calibrate your conscience? And what are some examples of that in scripture to know the difference between conviction? I just talked a moment ago about 
you know, making sure if it's something you keep coming back to by and large, then if, if, if it's a decision you're making by fear, that's, that's probably not a good decision. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I think one of the things, and I, I always tend to default back to this because it's something I've done for eight and a half years and it's something that I love, but jujitsu analogies come to mind left and right when we talk about this in a situation where you have someone you know, who's trying to do you harm and they are on top of you and they're trying to punch you in the face. For example, one of the things you may want to do is put your arms up and extend your arms. And in jujitsu, you don't want to do that in jujitsu. You have to recalibrate your instincts because what is, what may seem instinctively right will either get you choked. It'll get your arm broke or it'll get your leg ripped off. It's what is instinctively right is oftentimes not the best thing to do. And you have to train yourself and develop the muscle memory to know what you should do instead. So when we're talking about calibrating our conscience, what we're talking about is training your mind to think about this in a more healthy way and to understand it in a more scriptural way, in a way that appreciates the meta narrative of the Bible. And one of the things that comes to mind is Peter, you know, Peter, he calibrated his conscience. His conscience told him that it was wrong to eat certain animals. There were certain meats that he shouldn't eat, whether it was pork or catfish or anything like that. You know, if it was an animal that, that didn't have a split hoof, it's not something that he should eat. You know, there, there are certain things that he should eat and shouldn't eat. And think about Peter. He's a Jew. He has grown up as a Jew his entire life. He has been taught this from day one. This is something you do not eat. You don't eat this at all. And in Acts 10, we know that story where the Holy Spirit, or rather the angel of the Lord, appears to Cornelius and tells him that his prayers have come up as an offering before God. He needs to send for Simon Peter to come, and he'll tell him what he needs to do. So he sends emissaries to Peter. And at the same time this is going on, Peter's at Simon the Tanner's house, and he has this vision whenever he's up on Simon the Tanner's roof. And he sees the sheet let down with all these animals in it. And God says, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, oh, no, Lord, my conscience won't let me do that. I have never eaten an unclean thing. And God says, what I've called clean, don't call unclean. Mm. And so this goes back and forth. And God's basically telling him, look, there's nothing wrong with this anymore over there in Acts, Acts 10. And that's a big deal. I mean, that's as big a deal. That's as big a deal for anybody as for a sister who, you know, may no longer believe it's a sin to cut her hair, but she just can't do it because she wants to take the safe route. Yeah. You know, whatever, whatever you want to plug in there. And that's something, you know, of course, the bigger meaning there was that Peter needs to be ready to accept the Gentiles whenever these emissaries arrive that what God has called clean, don't call unclean. This is a, a, a parallel to people. This is, this is a lesson that God is teaching Peter through this vision. But one of the things we see is that Peter calibrated it. He went to Cornelius's house. He understood what the vision meant, but that doesn't mean that he behaved perfectly from then on because Peter screwed up too. He continued to struggle with it. Yeah, well, and that this illustration, as you pointed, you know, we don't want to lose the fact that the main point of this illustration is to show that Gentiles are to be accepted as part of the kingdom as well. But the illustration wouldn't make any sense if the point wasn't also it's okay to eat these foods that were once considered unclean, because if it was still wrong to eat those, 
then uh, then the, the illustration's illustration, lost. Absolutely. Yeah. And so uh, when you look at Peter and his situation, you know, one thing that a lot of people talk about is abominations. You'll hear people say, oh, this, the Bible calls this an abomination. And most people don't even know what the word abomination means, by the way. They'll, oh, it's an abomination. And uh, I was listening to, I was listening to somebody the other day. They go, I don't care if it's the Old Testament or the New Testament. If God calls it an abomination, it's an abomination. And, and, and what came to my mind, which by the way, this is in my book that's coming out soon. I, I know nobody's ever heard me talk about this. It's, it's and it's good, out. brother. I got to <laughs> go ahead and say this to our listeners. Um, I got an advanced rough draft copy and folks, it's going to be a really good book. It's excellent so far. I mean, there's some some trimming and some cleaning up that needs to be done. A little polish oh, needs yeah. to be put on Clean it. But folks, it up a little bit. You guys are going to like this book. Anyway, go ahead. I got I got the folks who've got their doctorate's degrees looking at it right now. The people who really <laughs> who really know what they're talking about. But in in here's what you have is in the Old Testament things such as eating pork and rabbit and shellfish. Those are actually called abominations in Deuteronomy 14, three through 21 eating pork was considered an abomination. And I know that this preacher who said, if it's a considered abomination, either the old or new Testament, we need to call it an abomination. I know for a fact he eats pork. So it just shows you the, uh, I don't know what words you would even call that, but it's this inconsistency anyway. That's a side point. I don't even know why I brought that up. Only to point out that Peter believed that this was an abomination. This yeah. would have been something that, according to Jewish law, was not only wrong, it wasn't questionable, it was called an abomination. And now he was being told to do it. And here is what I find super interestingly, because we talked about 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14 and not violating your conscience. There are times when we have to violate our conscience if it means doing the right thing. Let me say that one Peter's more time. Peter's a case in point. Absolutely. <laughs> there are times when we have to violate our conscience when it means doing the right thing. So what 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14 are talking about is when it's a moot point, when it, it it's not going to affect anybody else one way or the other, it truly is something at that point in time you're convicted you shouldn't be doing, and if you do it, it can really hinder your faith, and, and that's really your own conviction at that time. Okay, yes, that's one thing. But when it comes to saying, well, my conscience is calling me to do something or not do something that I need to be doing or not to be doing, vice versa, it doesn't matter. At that point, we have to override our conscience. So that's why Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 should not be the only passages that people yes. use when it talks about the conscience. Because there's times they're saying, look, your conscience right now is hindering the spread of our congregation. So you've either got to get over your conscience or you're going to have to probably figure out a different way to to uh, to worship or, or, or figure out a different congregation that's going to be more suited for, for where you're at right now because we cannot allow one person's conscience to hinder us from accepting other people into the kingdom. And, and that is so vital to understand. But as you pointed out, this means that not only are there times we have to calibrate our conscience, we can calibrate our conscience, but it doesn't mean that we're all automatically going to feel that. So let's say that today... I say, you know, I, I don't believe that there's anything wrong, Lee, with using instrumental music in worship. Yeah. But I've gone to a few church services and it makes me every now and then feel uncomfortable. Well, my first question is, do you feel uncomfortable because you are convicted it is wrong? 
or do you feel uncomfortable because that's not what you've done the majority of your life? The answer by and large to that question for someone who has changed their position is no, this isn't my conviction because I've changed my position. So yeah. what it what it is is it's not their conscience. Or excuse me, it's it's not their conviction, it's their conscience. And the this is what I tell people. This is how I understand. I may be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe conviction should lead the conscience. Con- conscience should not lead the conviction. Yes, I agree 100%. Is you can't let the tail wag the dog. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's even 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14. I mean, ultimately, when we, we talked there about these are people who truly believed. This was their conviction. If you were to ask them in their sober mind what they believe, they would say, no, it's wrong to eat these meats that are unclean, or it's wrong to eat these meats that have been sacrificed to idols. Why? Because that's what they believed. It wasn't a matter of, oh, well, I'm not sure if I do it. I don't know. I'm not sure. No, no, no. They really believed that these things were wrong. And so what what I like to to... When, when this conversation comes up with people and they say, I believe this, but sometimes I feel this way. I'll say, well, what do you, what did you say you believe? Well, I believe this. And I'll say, okay, then that's your conviction. So you're not violating your, 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 your conviction in any way. Your conscience just needs to be re- recalibrated. But that, that doesn't mean that, I mean, it could be, it could take a long time. You pointed that out. Peter was still struggling with this. It could take perhaps years. It may be the your whole life where you still have some of that feeling inside of you based upon how you were conditioned, but you begin to learn how to handle that, how to live with that, how to follow your how to follow your conviction and within a period of time really really work on it. And so if how to know if your conscience is working for you or against you, this is this is it for me. This is what I tell people. We should only listen to our conscience when we are convinced it is right. Let me say that again. We should only listen to our conscience when we are convinced it's right. Our conscience is only there to help us do those things we already believe we should be doing, but that gives us that extra kick. It's not there to change our conviction. <laughs> I mean, I mean that's, that's not the point of the conscience at all. So we should only listen to our conscience when we are convinced it is right. Even Paul taught, that you're only sinning against your conscience when you believe your conscience is speaking correctly and you refuse to listen to it. So if I believe something and I'm convicted that instrumental music's wrong, if I say, Kevin, look, I've listened to your podcast. It's junk. I don't. I think you're horrible at making arguments. I don't agree with it. I think the only way you can please God is by singing without instrumental music. Then at that point, your conscience and your conviction are in harmony because you don't believe it. Now, over a period of time, maybe you'll get to the point where you don't have any problem with it, but you may never get to the point where you feel like you can worship with it. But that's because you truly are convinced that it's wrong. But if you say, well, hey, I've studied and I've come to the conclusion there's nothing wrong with it, Kevin, but every time I go to church and and, and, and they pull out the guitar, man, I get this weird feeling inside of me. And I just wonder, is that my conscience telling me I'm wrong? Is that the Holy Spirit? No, it's not. It's your past doctoral conditioning triggering going off because you trained it to go off for many, many years. And you're going to have to, as we use the word of the day, recalibrate that conscience. Absolutely. And I think that point, you know, and here at the very end and just what about six or seven minutes, we're able to pretty much summarize all of it. <laughs> I mean, it's not to say the conversation it, brother, wasn't that, man, it's good a, stuff. 
I had a good meal before I came on, man. So I got a lot of energy tonight, bro. Well, there you go. But no, I think that's such a solid point. I mean, if you believe one thing, but your conscience is telling you something different, then your conscience needs to be calibrated to what you believe. It doesn't need to drive a shift in conviction. Yeah. And you can't let your, and I don't remember where I heard this term, but I've borrowed it many times. You can't let your heart eat your brain. But you also can't let your brain override your heart at all times. They they go part and parcel together. But if you believe something and you genuinely have a conviction, if if someone were in the same situation you were in, what advice would you give them? Mm. That's what you Very believe. Yeah. What what you tell people is what you believe, even if there's a disconnect or dissonance between your conscience and your conviction. Your conviction needs to be what rules the day. It needs to be what drives things forward because what we have been conditioned to believe in the past can lead to a visceral response, that autonomic response that we talked about earlier. Yeah. And no, I love that. What you, what you would tell somebody else. Cause that kind of gets you outside of your own mind. Yeah. So, Cause you know, my mind, man is, is it's a scary place. And <laughs> so sometimes it's good to get out of it and say, okay, well, if, if the same person was asking you the question you're asking yourself, what would you tell them? And whatever yeah. you would say, that's that's really what you believe, even if you don't feel it. That's because that's what you would never put somebody else. You would never give, especially someone you love, bad advice. So whatever advice you're giving them, ultimately, that's what you believe is the best thing. Exactly. So at the end of the day, whenever we talk about how do we deal with our conscience, we can summarize it this way. What do you believe is truth? You know, it's the same question that Jesus asked that doctor of the law that came to him and was asking, you know, what master, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what does the law say? What's your reading of it? And the question is, is what are the conclusions you hold? What are the convictions you have? Why do you have those convictions? Is it because you inherited a certain pattern of theology? Is it because you have been taught a certain way of thinking and a certain way of living and a certain way of applying the scriptures? Mm -hmm. Is it, have you worked out your own salvation with fear and trembling, you might say? And in fear and trembling, it's not in terror. Have you worked out your salvation with reverence to the scriptures? Have you worked it out by treating the scriptures as they should be treated? Have you really studied and examined and dove deep, not in a legal sense, but in order to understand the heart of the scriptures, in order to understand the heart of Jesus? And based on that hard work of studying the Bible, and working out that salvation and working out what it means to walk that Christian walk. At that point, what are your convictions and what do you believe? Yeah. And your conscience needs to follow suit with that. You can't let your conscience be the thing that drives everything because your conscience can be loud and wrong. Sometimes your convictions can be misplaced. But sure. you can't allow your conscience to rule the day. Yeah, and, and in fact, the Bible, I, I want to add this point too, it warns against following our feelings when they are detached from conviction and wisdom. We see this in Proverbs 28, 26, Jeremiah 27, 9, Psalm 73, 26, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, where in this wisdom literature, it warns against following our conscience, following our feelings when they're detached from conviction and wisdom. And so 
that that's that's actually almost a, a a good cue to listen to and say, okay, if if I am emotional, if I'm fearful, if I feel like I've got to give an answer right now, then whatever I'm feeling right now, this is this is probably not the right thing. I mean that that I'm not going to say it's always that you know that's not always 100% bulletproof gauge, but I I would say that that's pretty good that you're not. As a rule of thumb. Yeah. And, you know, I I may feel like I'm doing something wrong, but do I believe I'm doing something wrong? You know, I, I, when I was having panic attacks, I felt like I was in danger, but I had to ask myself, am I actually in danger? And so the same thing is, okay, well, I'm worshiping a different way. I don't think it's wrong, but I I, I don't know. I kind of have these feelings. Maybe it is. But then you have to stop and say, okay, but do I believe that it's wrong? If the answer is no, then allow those feelings to be there. And the more that you, you know, instead of fighting them, just allow them to be there. Continue to work on that conviction, lead with that conviction, and your conscience will follow and you'll it'll it'll start to to work together. It'll start to work better together when you when you get to that point. But most Christians who I have met who've asked me about this. They're terrified, man. And I know what it's like as I've been there too. They are terrified because every little doubt that pops up in their mind, any little feeling they get at the pit of their gut, they think, is this something I don't need to be doing? Is this, oh no, maybe, maybe this is God telling me I'm wrong. And I actually had a young, a young lady reach out to me months ago and she actually heard me preach when she was like 13 years old. And I went and preached for uh, actually where her dad was a preacher. Now she's in her she's in her mid twenties, and she was telling me that you know when when she heard when or maybe she's early twenties, uh, but she's a lot older. She's a young adult now, and she said, "I want to reach out to you, but you know I was I was warned not to, and I even feel wrong for coming to you because you know I'm not sure if what I need to be doing right now." And so. I actually just gave her some verses. I said, well, I said, you know, our feelings cannot be our guide. And they said, well, yeah, but, you know, that's that that's that's uh, what I was taught, too. And so, you know, I, I don't know what I need to be doing right now. And I mean, it just kind of sends people in this tailspin of what do I believe and how do I know I believe it? And it comes back to what are you convinced right now? Take take punishment away, because first John four, 17 through 19 says that. Uh, love has nothing to do with punishment. So we don't need to act in fear. So if, if you were to just say, this is my belief right now, what is it? And Lee, as we talked about a minute ago, you pointed this out. What would you tell somebody else? That's what you believe. That's where your conviction lies, regardless of what you may think or feel. That's what you actually believe. And then you kind of work around that. But I think this has been a really good episode, man. This is something I think we could talk a whole lot more about, and we may come back to it in the future. I want to hear what people have to say about the episode and, because there's a lot of different branches we could have we could have kind of walked out onto to to talk a little bit more, but I definitely think this is a good starting point for people. I agree, man. And it's so hard to narrow it down. It's so hard to keep it at its core. What do we need to discuss? What can we leave out of this discussion? Because it's so layered. It's so nuanced. And there's, like you said, there's so many different directions that we can go. But I think that this is a really, really good starting point. And at the end of the day, we need to know what we believe. We need to know why we believe it. And we need to allow our conviction to be the driving force behind it all. 
So, man, thank you for a good conversation. We'll go ahead and wrap it up and basically beg for those five-star reviews again, like we do at the end of every episode. Uh, (laughs) Give us that five-star review on iTunes. Share this podcast with your friends. If you have any questions, give us a shout. Shoot us an email. Join our online discussion group on Facebook. We appreciate all of you. Thank you all so much. And may your convictions be your guide. Good night.